Welcome to the Nia Chuan Podcast. My name is Isaac Kamins. This is a bi-weekly podcast where my friend Jess O'Brien and I talk about internal martial arts, qigong, and meditation. This week we uh, take a little departure from our normal topic of qigong and uh, martial arts and we talk about the cultural influence of the Boxer Rebellion on martial arts uh, at the turn of the 20th century. We discussed the participation of uh, a couple of Bagua masters in the Boxer Rebellion, specifically Yin Fu and Chen Tinghua. Um, that comes from an article by Frank Allen, uh, who we just recently interviewed, which will be out on our Patreon soon. So if you want to check that out, you should join our Patreon. Uh, then we talk about uh, the third swing and just some general stuff about that, how to protect your knees, how to... Uh, stay aligned as you swing. Um, there's a couple things uh, about this episode. At one point, Jess makes a comment that uh, was recorded before 1-6, so it wasn't based on any fact at that time, but seems to be fairly appropriate for the times we're in. Uh, and the audio cuts off at the very end, so we lost the last minute or so, but you didn't miss anything. It was just Jess and I saying goodbye to each other. Um, that was a problem with the recording, so nothing we can do there. Okay, uh, hope you enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Take care. Welcome back to the Neja Trend Podcast with Isaac and Jess. We're continuing our journey through the Opening the Energy Gates of Your Body book by B.K. Francis. We've been going through the uh, biography of... Leo Hung Jae, the sort of final master that he meets in his experience in China. Um, and we wanted to dig a little deeper into the life and times of Master Leo, what, what, his, what his life was like, what China was like at that time, what martial arts, what was going on with martial arts at that time. And, you know, in, in some ways, it's a really different world than today. And in others, maybe it's, it's not that different. Um, and Master Leo... As we've discussed before, he comes from a rich family. He's a highly educated person. He's sort of living in the upper crust of that time period. He's not really down in the dirty dumps of like street martial arts. He's, you know, as he goes through his life, he's learning a lot from high level masters with great reputations. Um, but, uh, you know, so we're going to look a little further at his life story over the next couple podcasts and the history of those times and what it was like growing up in the early 1900s. So since Leo Hung Jae's birth takes place in 1903, so we thought we could look a little closer at the Boxer Uprising that takes place in 1900. Um, and so I'll, I'll read a little bit here from the Wikipedia page so we can get a sense of what this is. The Boxer Uprising was an anti-imperialist, anti-foreign, and anti-Christian uprising in China between 1899 and 1901 towards the end of the Qing dynasty. So they explain here, it was initiated by the Militia United in Righteousness, which is sort of a village martial arts group that grew stronger and stronger, known in English as the boxers, because many of their members had practiced Chinese martial arts, also referred to in the Western world at that time as Chinese boxing. So the background here, villagers in North China had been building resentment against Chinese missionaries. The immediate background of the uprising included severe drought, a bunch of uh, foreign wars, including the Sino-Japanese War, five years previously. So there's these months of growing violence in the villages and the plains of North China. 
um, primarily focused against Christian missionaries and foreigners who had been slowly penetrating into the country over time. And so at the end here, it says, boxer fighters, convinced they were invulnerable to foreign weapons, converged on Beijing with the slogan, support the Qing government and exterminate the foreigners. So that's this, so 1900 is this moment when resentment and stress and a foreign invasion and intrusion and severe drought all combined for this uprising of really poor people, people with nothing to lose. Like you can see from the stories of the time, it wasn't necessarily something that was organized by the government at first. Um, it was this popular uprising that was meant to drive the foreigners out and return China to its previous ways. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a pretty standard formula for uprising, right? You have some sort of natural disaster. You have a government that's not doing much to... Right. You can care less about you. And, you know, who's the easiest target to go after, right? It's foreigners. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's, it happens repeatedly throughout history. Right. Uh, and, you know, relevant to our stuff is that there was this element of Taoism and martial arts involved in it. And, you know, I heard one uh, sort of description of a guy who, you know, was basically, you know, he's down on his luck. So he went and he joined one of these groups. And um, essentially it was a, a quick ceremony, uh, a, a little blessing, a little this, a little of that. They give you a spear. And they tell you you're invulnerable to bullets and send you on your way. Off and you go. I, yeah. And it, you know, like the whole thing takes like less than an hour, right? Oh, no. And, and so it was, a, I think it was just a way of recruiting people. Uh, you know, you get someone up there doing fancy martial arts stuff and maybe taking, uh, doing some sort of, you know, Qigong trick, like a sword, you know, whenever they take a sword shot to the belly or something, or, you know, even, even in those days they did it where you, they'd wear, you know, like a thick leather shirt and then they'd shoot a, you know, inch, inch wide, uh, musket at them and that would stop it, you know? And so they'd say they were invulnerable to bullets and it's like, well, yeah, you might be able right. to stop one. You know, stopping one coming at you from the front is very different than stopping 20 that are coming at you from all angles. You know, right. So. No. I mean, as a martial arts type person, you hear about, you know, the Boxer Rebellion really for mar mar for Chinese martial arts practitioners is like this, this moment in time that symbolizes, you know, there's the old days before the Boxer Uprising, and then there's modern times. You know, it's, it's kind of that dividing line maybe in some way like the civil war in America is like this big dividing line or world war two, maybe in Europe boxer uprising is well, maybe well, not as significant as those, but it really, you know, it's the timeline differentiation right there. Well, and it's also where you get like certain people coming out of it saying, well, you know, I survived the boxer rebellion mm. and, and sort of build, like, I think the Jing Wu, wasn't the Jing Wu Association founded oh, around that time? Maybe. So it was, you know, it was part of this overcoming the stigma of being weak and, mm. you know, lesser than Westerners, right? Came, it's was, true, was, right? A physical health uh, trend builds up after that time, including right. Jing so Wu that, and, yeah, it was like a, it was like a reaction to this this boxer defeat, you know. Mm -hmm. Because really, it's a moment of, of self-reflection for martial arts, because up until that point, 
firearms aren't that common in the hinterlands. You know, they're, they're something that only the elite have. So martial arts is continuing on its merry way since ancient times up until that moment. And the illusion of invulnerability and the, that sort of moment of like, oh my God, that we counted on this and it really doesn't, it's not able to stand up to the foreigners. That's a, that's a huge blow to the kind of face and the reputation of yeah. Chinese martial arts. And one, you know, one theory is that that was a way of the imperial government basically deflecting the fact that they hadn't modernized their military. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And instead of admitting that they had fucked up, they kind of said, well, we had faith in these boxers and it was, you know, and they blew it. So, you know, it wasn't our fault. Well, scrolling down this article um, to the end of sort of what happens, the fallout from this uh, uprising. So the eight nation alliances, all these foreign uh, powers, after being initially turned back, brought 20,000 armed troops to China, defeated the Imperial Army, and arrived at Beijing on August 14th. Uncontrollable plunder of the capital and the surrounding countryside ensued, along with summary execution of those suspected of being boxers. So this is a total defeat. The boxers get rolled over, the Imperial Army gets shattered, and they're in the Forbidden City in Beijing, um, just absolutely looting and trashing the place. So this is this isn't the first time there's been an invasion that conquers Beijing, but this is sort of the last time when foreign troops just run rampant and they're sitting, I remember reading an article with them sitting on the Imperial throne and taking pictures with the yeah. Marines gathered around and just, they had the run of the place. And so all mm -hmm. these prizes from that time, you know, are, are here in the West. And it's just a moment of, imagine somebody just as a foreign country raiding the White House and just wrecking the place. It may have lost some prestige, but that would still, hurt all Americans, you know. And so the Boxer Rebellion has a great impact on Liu Hongzhi's education, his experience in China. So he's born in 1903, three years after this traumatic moment. But still the Qing Dynasty continues. The Empress Dowager remains in power. The, you know, the Chinese traditional emperor continuity since antiquities remains in place on his birth in 1903. So I wanted to look at the at the participation of Bagua teachers here in the uh, Boxer Uprising. These are the teachers of Liu Hongzhi's teachers. So maybe, you know, these are the guys who are acting during 1900, whose students then are primarily Liu Hongzhi's teacher, although some of them also survived to teach him. Um, the first one we were gonna look at is the famous Bagua master, Thin Yin, Thin Yin Fu. Um, his nickname is Thin Yin, but Yin Fu is his name. And he was uh, you know, the number one student of the founder of Bagua, Dong Ai Chuan. Um, Liu Hongzhi ends up training with one of Yin Fu's students later on in life. So I'm drawing from the article, uh, the story of Thin Yin and Spectacles Cheng by Frank Allen. Uh, he published a number of places. The Yin and Yang of Bagua Zhang, he wrote some years back um, by Frank Allen and Clarence Liu. Um, Here's the quote. Thin Yin did not intend to participate in the Boxer Rebellion. This lack of intention evaporated when he received a summons to the palace. Upon arrival, Yin Fu was asked if his security agency would protect the Empress Dowager during her escape from the capital. This could be the most dangerous position of the campaign, but it was an offer which he couldn't refuse. The Empress Dowager had been the patron of the Boxers, but had withdrawn her support under pressure from the foreign powers. Now she was despised by one group and hated by the other. Leaders of both groups felt that their cause would be better off when the Empress Dowager was underground. Being her bodyguard was the last position in the capital that anyone wanted. 
but she was still the empress, a personage that people didn't say no to. With the help of his students and guards, Yin Fu safely escorted the Empress Dowager to another palace. It was an act with, which was to bring him undying fame. And this, this job that Yin Fu pulls off, smuggling the Empress out of Beijing while the foreign powers are attacking, that makes his reputation. And indeed, it, in, it makes the reputation of Bagua Zhang the martial art. You know, all martial arts have their hero, right? Or their hero stories. So it, it helps to promote the school right you can say well we had this one guy who did yeah. this one amazing thing and you know right especially when it's something like that it i think it has a real impact and and so another uh participant in the boxer uprising of sorts was another of dong ai chuan the founder of bagua his students uh cheng tinghua whose son ends up being the teacher of liu hongje um and famous master uh, Chang Tinghua also got caught up in the Boxer Rebellion here. The ill-fated Boxer Rebellion was mostly ignored by the top Bagua men. Many of them had connections to the palace, which precluded their involvement. Chang Tinghua had no intentions of becoming involved in the conflict, but he was a passionate man. When returning home one afternoon, he found German troops raping and looting in his neighborhood, and he lost his temper. He calmly walked into the middle of the Germans and drew his elbow knives. These were the single-edged, forearm-length slashing weapons, which were his specialty. Chang turned into a whirlwind of edge death until the Germans retreated, leaving a dozen of their comrades lifeless in the dirt. Oozing blood from a score of wounds, with his last stand successfully over, Spectacles Chang sunk down among his defeated foes and joined them in the dust of destiny. Which is a very dramatic retelling of the death of Chang Tinghua during this boxer uprising which, you know, he was the, one of the most popular Bagua teachers. His school was thriving and had tons of students who went on to teach. So to this day, the Cheng style is probably the most well-known of Bagua systems. But it's also a great pity that the founder of this whole group had to die so young. Yeah, I mean, when there's, uh, in the Bagua journal, they have a alternative story, which essentially is, he was he was walking down the street some german soldiers stopped him he got him to do a little scuffle with them he escaped and as he was escaping they shot him in the back Boom. so you know either way it didn't end well for old master cheng you know and uh, yeah it's a real tragedy that that happened uh, he was yeah uh, he was 52. wow yeah, and he was just, you know, he was so prolific and taught so many people and had really systemized Bagua. And so in a way, you know, Yin Fu had this big reputation by, by you know, helping the Empress. But Cheng had maybe had a bigger school and had a bigger impact that way by really having an effective system. I don't think it was the, the particulars of the style that had anything to do with it so much as just the fact that his son and his students... Mm had a successful school and whereas i think the yin fu people had a harder time developing a uh the business side of it so they tended to work out in smaller groups and right yeah i mean maybe by choice they they were more private inside sort of group that didn't open as much to the public yeah i mean as i understand it you know you know his best students were one of them died and the other one didn't teach much hmm. and the one that like the guy that leo trained with there were actually two of them but mainly iron arms lee right iron arm lee but the and the other would be magui right 
and at Magui, you know, he didn't have that many students. So, yeah, that's you know, and that's all the history of Bagua that that continues from there. But this this moment in 1900 really sort of sets the stage for what's to come. There's this whole history of Chinese martial arts that comes down to this moment in time when our conception of maybe our modern conception of martial arts sort of begins now. It's not this deadly thing that is used for that you learn to be a bodyguard and, and at a young age and go protecting caravans. It's more it becomes that physical culture model that that martial arts for health and for longevity and those things become more emphasized, especially later when the palace gets overthrown and these teachers go out on the street. They have to find a reason to teach, similar to samurai in Japan who couldn't, you know, they developed their art as something to be above and beyond just fighting when there wasn't as much fighting to be done. You know, it wasn't a job anymore. Or after World War II, mm. Kano developed judo for that mm -hmm. same, you know, that there's a, again, it's, it's about sort of rebuilding this confidence and this, uh, sense of national unity through mm. martial arts mm -hmm. martial arts are good for that whereas martial arts before had had a different flavor to it there was it was more secretive it was more for you know and the bagua journal always describes how bagua made its mark when young men needed a job you'd go to a bagua teacher learn bagua for a year or two then they'd hand you a sword and a spear and you'd join a caravan guard and now you're getting paid like a union job, you know, it was a good job to get. Right. Whereas now after, after boxer uprising, now it becomes more of this training for health thing. The, the boxer rebellion was the uh, death nail for martial arts as a formal mean, formal means of military, you know, defense, right. That mm -hmm. once guns came into the whole thing, you know, you didn't need to spend years training someone. You could in 20 minutes, you could show them how to do it. And, you know, they could blow you away from 15, 20 yards away. And martial arts are fairly useless from that distance. So, you know, I think that, that the same thing happened in, in Japan and probably everywhere else that people did martial arts. And I wonder how it's adapting today. Well, I mean, sports, right? I think that... can't Starting with Kano and the in the judo movement up till now sportification of martial arts is a very strong movement right because it's a way of continuing the tradition to at least some degree and still doing this the art right. and then you know also it's about making money right that mm -hmm. if you're gonna if you're gonna teach martial arts you have to um people have to pay you and it, there has to be some prize at the end of it for most people to want to do stuff like that so you know if you set up a competition and you have and people have something to train towards you know they'll stick around longer than if it's just out of pure love of doing martial arts and so you know so i think that model is came out of that reform after guns came into the scene yep and, you know, maybe as the years go by, martial arts continue to develop in different ways. And I think sports is definitely one. You've got Wushu and, and you know, Olympic Taekwondo, Olympic Judo. These are competitive forms. And then you have the MMA of our generation, which is this, this whole new sportification of traditional fighting arts and combat sports all mixed together. And so, you know, who knows what's going to grow out of that? Another new movement will surely arise. Returning to chapter nine on the third swing, we move forward to preparatory arm exercises for swing three. 
Um, so one of the ones that you like, we like the best is the uh, raise the arms and let them fall freely. So for this exercise, you raise both arms over your head, palms facing out and let them fall. Don't throw the arms down, push them down or force them down. Just let them go completely as if the strings of a puppet were cut. And that's a pretty nice way of putting it. We've over the years in our classes, I always try to think of new metaphors or new, uh, new ways of describing that sensation of just, you snip the thread and the sandbag just falls. Like there's, there's just a total let go of just, uh, what are your, some of your favorite phrases for that? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think the the thread being cut's a pretty good one because it, it's just that feeling of, you know, there's something holding it at first and then it lets go. But the thing is to not do it where it throws your head forward or you throw your arm down. You just let it drop. So there's no there's no added whip to it. It's just you let it drop. You don't... So, so one one error would be to throw it down. Another one would be to let it shake up your structure when it does. Or to like whip your shoulder, right? To like do some kind of up and down movement with your shoulder. Your arm is just just drops, and there's no bounce. It doesn't bounce back up and like have a, a floppiness to it. It's very. Um, it's like something that splats on the floor. It's like dropping an egg on the floor. You don't yeah. throw the egg out the floor. You just open your hand and it falls and gravity carries it down. And it doesn't bounce. It, it, it mostly has to do with, yeah, exactly. Just that thing when something drops, there's a certain, you know, it's gravity. It's just the speed that gravity takes it down. You're not adding any any of your own strength to it. And so the next one he adds is I have a partner lift your arm up in the air and drop it down. And that's one we've used in our classes a million times. Like, well, that's just the, that's the testing of the, the previous one, right? So the first one is you do it by yourself and then you do it, have a partner do it. And what that is, then you really feel how quickly you can go from holding it, right? That your arms up in the air and someone's holding it to just letting, when it drops, you aren't still holding your arm up in the air. Cause what will happen is, the person lets go and the the arm just stays there in in right. up in the air inevitably just, your arm just stays there in the air when they let go and then you're standing there going what am i supposed to do oh yeah and then you relax it and let it fall right i mean there. usually the first time you do it to someone they'll they'll just hold if they're tight they'll, they'll right, hold they're still they'll just hold their arm up in the air and then then that's usually when you do the the arm jiggling, jiggling. exercise and that loosens it up a little bit. And then they kind of get the feeling of that. Okay. When you jiggle it and let it release, that's the same feeling as when the person lets go, you just let it drop. So you don't have to, um, you're not, again, you're not adding any body to it or whipping your head or anything. It's just your arm dropping. So it shouldn't go very fast. It doesn't drop like with a lot of speed. It just kind of thunk. Like, uh, but it has a certain kind of weight to it because there's mm -hmm. it's relaxed, so it, it will it will kind of thud. Um, it's like a log or a rock rolling downhill, it doesn't have like a push to it, but it's got a weight to it. It's more like just dropping a rock, like if you just hold mm -hmm. if you're holding a rock and you're a ball in your hand, right? I think a ball is, is the way I would think of it is 
you know, that if you're holding a ball in your hand and you just let it go, it will drop and it will bounce back up a little bit, but it, you know, a lot less than if you throw it. Right. So mm-hmm. this is just letting the thing drop and it's, you know, it's a ball that doesn't have much air in it. So it kind of just plops when it hits the bottom. Yeah. And, and flat. the, the big thing is getting the reflex or the instinct, whatever it is to throw your arm down and to like add this sort of bicep twitch to it um and not just use the rotating of the shoulder and let your shoulder relax the hardest part of this whole thing is to do it without adding that sort of shoulder arm strength so the stuff with just twisting the arm the stuff with letting the arm swing like this that's just to get you out of having that sense that you need to hold your arm and clench it. And so I want to talk a little bit more about this because, you know, in this martial arts school, loose, soft power is emphasized. And this exercise and the third swing in specific are where a lot of the fighting techniques get their power in this system. It's where the falling weight of your arm is the beginning of using that falling weight to smash somebody in the head and knock them over. Why is this move so damn important to getting that sense of whole body unified yet loose and relaxed power? It's the spring, right? It's the uh, a fundamental principle of, of all, like I said, of all internal martial arts is that it doesn't necessarily have to be like soft and squishy, but there's no tension in it, right? So relax. And, and this third swing is that sort of thing where it, your arms are relaxed, but they're not uh, floppy, mm. right? They're not, they're not limp. Mm. There's something in your arm as it drops, but you're not putting it in your arm. It's that as it swings, you know, it's like water. It's, it's like water in a balloon, right? As you swing it, it moves out to the end. So you get this flow out into your arms which makes them sort of these big heavy meat sacks that have a lot of have a lot of warmth <laughs> yeah exactly and well it, i wanted it, to throw in a thought like you know if your arms are really really loose and and you know to some degree soft and they're not containing a lot of tension the only way to give them strength is to use your legs and your body to power those arms so you hear a lot about that kind of thing in internal martial arts. And here you are in the third swing, you're purposefully taking all the strength, all the tightness, all the tension out of your arms. Now you kind of have no choice, but to use the core of your body to swing it through space. And in the same sense of a, you know, say a log is flying through the air. It's only weighs five or six pounds. If a log flies through the air and clocks you in the head, that can hurt really bad. Well, the same way your body causes this loose arm to swing, when it makes impact, there's just a real funk that comes with that, that, you know, ever since we've been working together, I've been working on and just feeling that firsthand, it's just totally deflating. It's fast. It's adaptive. You don't have to rechamber after you swing it. There's all these benefits It's that come from getting this kind of whipping. It's got structure, but it's not tight. Um, that comes from this third swing. 
Well, there's, you know, there's whole martial arts, basically, that that's what they're built on is that that type of <clears throat> arm swinging <clears throat> type you know, motions where you mean like you know, Sancho? Yeah, or like Dongbei and uh, a drunken immortals. I mean, you know, all of these things where where your arms are fairly whippy and loose, right? Mm. But they're not they're, they're not soft when they hit you. I mean, it it's it's anything but soft. It's relaxed, but that's not the same. You know, you know what I mean? They're, they're, it's not soft like Tai Chi. It, mm. it has a certain now when you're doing the swings, it is soft like Tai Chi. Right, hmm. the, the swings are just you. You're not hitting anything, so there's no power in your arm. Um, but what you want is you want that. We've talked about the sloshing before, right? This the, this movement of blood and fluid inside your body. So as you swing your arms, one of the main things is by letting go of the tension and doing the swinging act actions, you start to get blood to flow out to your arm you know your fingertips and your extremities and so that's the the primary thing at this stage is just to get that you can swing your arm without tension and it's a lot more difficult than it sounds to do it because the like i said the inst the instinct to clench is very strong and i know that's some you know it seems like every class when we were teaching together it seemed like every class was just over and over, letting your arm drop again and again to teach yourself how to purposefully relax is a very difficult thing. And you start with the arm. That's that's a pretty easy way to begin. But you want to be able to move that relaxation to other parts of your body over time. The swings are, are they aren't an arm exercise. I mean, you do stuff, mm -hmm. do a little bit of twisting with your arms to keep them from ripping out of the socket. But other than that, 90% of the action is your legs and your waist. Mm -hmm. So it's about developing that, that body movement, that body power, which is very easily applied to hitting something. Right. But, <laughs> but it's, but it's done here to, you know, energize the internal organs and make the body strong. It's not done to, you know, knock somebody out, but, but that piece about just, getting your your body your core to do the work and not your arms i think is the most important part of those swings so he describes the uh the guy the uh that the actions of the third swing real simply right you're facing forward you squat down your arms go down you turn to the side you stand up your arms go up you still facing the side let your arms come down you turn back to the middle and your arms come up again as you stand back up. Yeah. And you just repeat that. I mean, and you can look at the pictures and it's pretty obvious, not a complicated movement externally. It's the, it's, it's the timing of it and that, that looseness of it that I think is the challenge. So, uh, yeah, you know, you, you need a teacher at least at some point, but one thing I found helpful was to just swing just to one side five or 10 times, then stop and then swing to the other side just five or 10 times, just so you don't get caught up in the momentum of going side to side and sort of half-ass some of the aspects of it. I like to just work on one side a few times to kind of help myself really focus on it. So that was one little practice tip I thought of. There are a lot of, of preliminary intermediate type of exercises that you can and should do with the swing before you really try to go full bore with it uh the book has a couple of them but 
you know, mostly, yeah, like you say, you got to do things on one leg. You got to mm-hmm. do things where you work on similar to, mm-hmm. to the second swing, how to mm-hmm. how to make the transition from both feet are on the ground to now you're turning one foot's off the ground and then you're continuing to swing and then your foot comes back. And so there's a coordination thing with your legs that's you know, a little bit tricky, but. I mean, another one that comes to mind is the sort of the skiing exercise that you just described where you squat down, swing down, stand up, swing up, squat down, swing down. You just do that to the front for a while till you start to get that quad connection rather than using your knees. You're using your quad, your butt to do it. So just to wrap up, we'll finish with the guidelines for the third swing that he offers at the end of the chapter. One, rising and sinking opens the macrocosmic orbit. So he describes here just the actions of physically lowering and rising and lifting. Together, these actions vigorously circulate the body's energy along what is called the large heavenly or macrocosmic orbit. So just the sheer pumping of the quad and the standing up and down is going to kick off this orbit of energy in your body and strengthen it, which is obviously already there. But this is, you know... It's, good. it's another way of enhancing that, that macrocosmic orbit, which he detailed more in the heaven and earth training that comes later. Right. This is just setting the groundwork. And here you are laying that foundation for, for the next set by, by being aware of that macrocosmic orbit while you train. But only on the physical level. You don't have to get all energetic about it. Just let the sloshing up and down move that energy in those channels. I mean, he says here, the se- second thing he says is hands will swing higher with practice. So this third swing is supposed to reach up to, to potentially third eye level, but at first you really don't feel that because your movement of your quads and getting your arms going very far. I mean, your your hands can go above your head. The issue has to do with your shoulders, right? So depending on how flexible you are, you can get, you, you know, if you put your hand on your shoulder and lift your arm up, if your shoulder doesn't go up with it, you're good. But at a certain point, if you start to lift your arm and your shoulder goes up with it, it's no good. So you, you could, most people, the initial thing is when your elbow gets higher than your shoulder, you start lifting up your shoulder blades. So, so that's where you would stop. But if your elbow is at the same height as your shoulder, your hands above your head. Unless you got really, really short forearms. Right. So, so. That's high enough. The highest it would go would be your elbow up to about your third eye. Any higher than that's not really no reason to do it. Hmm. Another guideline here is using effort to swing the arms stifles chi flow. So, you know, there's that lesson. If you're pushing it, if you're tightening it, if you're clenching it, chi doesn't move as well. I mean, the one thing I'll say about the swings is if you're doing it big at first, you're doing it wrong. That no matter how good you think you are, your swing at first is going to be a lot smaller than you think it should be. It's just a, it just the, na- the nature of this thing. It, it, takes, it takes a few swings to get the momentum going, right? And it doesn't just happen that your arms are all of a sudden above your head. There has to be this whole thing with the, 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 there's a buildup to it. Right. And so, uh, yeah, I just think most people that there is a desire, especially with the third swing to get your, your hands higher up in the air, not so much with their first swing and the second swing, mm. your arms aren't going that high, but with the third right. swing, everyone wants to get their arms really high. To do it right. It's meant to, you know, energize the upper body there. 
as soon as that shoulder goes up and you're using tension in your shoulders to hold your shoulder up, you're, and I like that word, stifling the, the flow that from your shoulder. So again, I, I mean, just, you can do it with yourself. Put your hand on, on your sort of neck shoulder area and lift up your arm. And if your shoulder starts to go up, you went too high. Hey folks, Isaac here again. Uh, just, uh, so again, sorry about the abrupt ending there. Once again, we uh, did interview Frank recently, and that's going to be out on our Patreon um, fairly soon. Uh, Frank hosts his own podcast. You can find that on uh, iTunes. It's the Whirling Circles podcast, and our interview should be out uh, fairly soon. It was a two, almost two-hour interview, so i got to cut it up into chunks, but uh, it's some really good stuff in there. So look out for that, and uh, in the meantime, you can check out our Patreon for other interviews that we've done, um, and other lessons and stuff like that. All right, take care, and uh, thanks for listening.